Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 1 of No More Parades. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 1. She found an early opportunity to carry on her investigations, for at dinner that night she found herself, Teachens having gone to the telephone with a lance corporal, opposite what she took to be a small tradesman, with fresh-coloured cheeks and a great grey forward-sprouting moustache in a uniform so creased that the crease resembled the veins of a leaf. A very trustworthy small tradesman, the grocer from round the corner whom sometimes you allow to supply you with paraffin. He was saying to her, If, ma'am, you multiply 2,900 and something by 10, you arrive at 29,000-odd. And she had exclaimed, Do you really mean that my husband, Captain Teachin, spent yesterday afternoon in examining 29,000 toenails and 2,900 toothbrushes? I told him, her interlocutor answered with deep seriousness, that these being colonial troops, it was not so necessary to examine their toothbrushes. Imperial troops will use the brush they clean their buttons with for their teeth so as to have a clean toothbrush to show the medical officer. It sounds, she said with a little shudder, as if you were all schoolboys playing a game. And you say my husband really occupies his mind with such things? Second Lieutenant Cowley, dreadfully conscious that the shoulder strap of his Sam Brown belt, purchased that afternoon at the Ordnance and therefore brand new, did not match the abdominal part of the belt that he had had for nearly ten years, a splendid bit of leather that, answered, nevertheless, stoutly, Madam, if the brains of an army aren't, the life of an army is in its feet, and nowadays the medical officers say in its teeth. Your husband, ma'am, is an admirable officer. He says that no draft he turns out shall, she said, he spent three hours in, you say, foot and kit inspection. Second Lieutenant Cowley said, of course he had other officers to help him with the kit, but he looked at every foot himself. She said, that took him from two till five. Then he had tea, I suppose, and went to, what is it, the papers of the draft? Second Lieutenant Cowley said, muffled through his moustache, if the captain is a little remiss in writing letters, I have heard, you might, madam, I'm a married man myself, with a daughter, and the army is not very good at writing letters. You might say in that respect that, thank God, we have got a navy, ma'am. She let him stagger on for a sentence or two, imagining that, in his confusion, she might come upon traces of Miss Wanup in Rouen. Then she said handsomely, Of course you have explained everything, Mr. Cowley, and I am very much obliged. Of course my husband would not have time to write very full letters. He is not like the giddy young subalterns who run after... He exclaimed with a great roar of laughter, The captain run after skirts. Why, I can number on my hands the number of times he's been out of my sight since he had the battalion. A deep wave of depression went over Sylvia. Why, Lieutenant Cowley laughed on, if we had a laugh against him, it was that he mothered the lot of us as if he was a hen sitting on addled eggs. For it's only a ragtime army, as the saying is, when you've said the best of it that you can. And look at the other commanding officers we've had before we had him. There was Major Brooks, never up before noon, if then, and out of camp by 2.30. Get your returns ready for signing before then, or never get them signed. And Colonel Potter, bless my soul, he wouldn't sign any blessed papers at all. He lived down here in this hotel, and we never saw him up at the camp at all. But the captain, we always say that, if he was a Chelsea adjutant getting off a draft of second cold streams. 
With her indolent and gracious beauty, Sylvia knew that she was displaying indolent and gracious beauty, Sylvia leaned over the tablecloth, listening for items in the terrible indictment that presently she was going to bring against Teachens. For the morality of these matters is this. If you have an incomparably beautiful wife on your hands, you must occupy yourself solely with her. Nature exacts that of you, until you are unfaithful to her with a snub-nosed girl with freckles. That, of course, being a reaction, is still, in a way, occupying yourself with your woman. But to betray her with a battalion, that is against decency, against nature. And for him, Christopher Teachens, to come down to the level of the men you met here... Teachens, mooning down the room between tables, had more than his usually aloof air since he had just come out of a telephone box. He slipped a weary mass into the polished chair between her and the lieutenant. He said, I've got the washing arranged for... And Sylvia gave herself a little hiss between the teeth of vindictive pleasure. This was, indeed, betrayal to a battalion. He added, I shall have to be up in camp before 4.30 tomorrow morning. Sylvia could not resist saying, Isn't there a poem? Ah, me. The dawn, the dawn, it comes too soon. Said, of course, by lovers in bed. Who was the poet? Cowley went visibly red to the roots of his hair and evidently beyond. Teachens finished his speech to Cowley, who had remonstrated against his going up to the camp so early, by saying that he had not been able to get hold of an officer to march the draft. He then said, in his leisurely way, There were a great many poems with that refrain in the Middle Ages. You are probably thinking of an albard by Arno Danielle, which someone translated lately. An albard was a song to be sung at dawn, when presumably no one but lovers would be likely to sing. Will there, Sylvia asked, be anyone but you singing up in your camp tomorrow at four? She could not help it. She knew that Teachens had adopted his slow pomposity in order to give the grotesque object at the table with them time to recover from his confusion. She hated him for it. What right had he to make himself appear a pompous ass in order to shield the confusion of anybody? The second lieutenant came out of his confusion to exclaim, actually slapping his thigh, "'There you are, madam. Trust the captain to know everything. "'I don't believe there's a question under the sun you could ask him that he couldn't answer. "'They say up at the camp.' "'He went on with long stories of all the questions Teachens had answered up at the camp. "'Emotion was going all over Sylvia, at the proximity of Teachens. "'She said to herself, "'Is this going to go on forever?' "'Her hands were ice-cold. "'She touched the back of her left hand with the fingers of her right. "'It was ice-cold.' She looked at her hands. They were bloodless. She said to herself, It's pure sexual passion. It's pure sexual passion. God, can't I get over this? She said, Father, you used to be fond of Christopher. Get our lady to get me over this. It's the ruin of him and the ruin of me. But oh, damn, don't, for it's all I have to live for. She said, when he came mooning back from the telephone, I thought it was all right. I thought, what a heavy wooden horse he looked for two minutes. Then it's all over me again. I want to swallow my saliva and I can't. My throat won't work. She leant one of her bare arms on the tablecloth towards the walrus moustache that was still snuffling gloriously. They used to call him Old Sol at school, she said, but there's only one question of Solomon he could not answer, the one about the way of a man with... Oh, a maid. Ask him what happened before the dawn ninety-six... No, ninety-eight days ago. She said to herself, I can't help it, oh, I can't help it.
the ex-sergeant major was exclaiming happily. Oh, no one ever said the captain was one of these thought readers. It's real solid knowledge of men and things he has. Wonderful how he knows the men, considering he was not born in the service. But there, your born gentleman mixes with men all his days and knows them, down to the ground and inside their putties. Titchens was looking straight in front of him, his face perfectly expressionless. But I bet I got him, she said to herself, and then to the sergeant major, I suppose now an army officer, one of your born gentlemen, when a back-from-leave train goes out from any of the great stations, Paddington, say, to the front, he knows how all the men are feeling, but not what the married women think, or the... the girl. She said to herself, damn it, how clumsy I am getting. I used to be able to take his hide off with a word. Now I take a sentence at a time. She went on with her uninterrupted sentence to Cowley. Of course, he may never be going to see his only son again, and so it makes him sensitive. The officer at Paddington, I mean. She said to herself, By God, if that beast does not give in to me tonight, he shall never see Michael again. Ah, but I got him. Titchens had his eyes closed. Round each of his high-coloured nostrils a crescent of whiteness was beginning and increasing. She felt a sudden alarm and held the edge of the table with her extended arm to steady herself. Men went white at the nose like that when they were going to faint. She did not want him to faint. But he had noticed the word Paddington. Ninety-eight days before, she had counted every day since, she had got that much information. She had said Paddington outside the house at dawn, and he had taken it as a farewell. He had. He had imagined himself free to do what he liked with the girl. Well, he wasn't. That was why he was white about the gills. Cowley exclaimed loudly, Paddington, it isn't from there that back from leave trains go. Not for the front, the BEF, not from Paddington. The Glamorganshires go from there to the depot, and the Liverpools, they've got a depot at Birkenhead. Or is that the Cheshires? He asked of Teachens, is it the Liverpools or the Cheshires that have a depot at Birkenhead, sir? You remember we recruited a draft from there when we were at Penhalley. At any rate, you go to Birkenhead from Paddington. I was never there myself. They say it's a nice place. Sylvia said, she did not want to say it, It's quite a nice place, but I should not think of staying there forever. Teachin said, The Cheshires have a training camp, not a depot near Birkenhead, and of course there are RGAs there. She had been looking away from him. Cowley exclaimed, You were nearly off, sir, hilariously. You had your peepers shut. Lifting a champagne glass, he inclined himself towards her. You must excuse the captain, ma'am, he said. He had no sleep last night, largely owing to my fault. Which is what makes it so kind of him. I tell you, ma'am, there are few things I would not do for the captain. He drank his champagne and began an explanation. You may not know, ma'am, this is a great day for me, and you and the captain are making it the greatest day of my life. Why, at four this morning there hadn't been a wretcheder man in Rowan Town, and now he must tell her that he suffered from an unfortunate and miserable complaint, one that makes one have to be careful of celebrations. And today was a day that he had to celebrate, but he dare not have done it where Sergeant Major Ledoux was along with a lot of their old mates. I dare not, I dustn't, he finished. So I might have been sitting now at this very moment up in the cold camp, but for you and the captain, up in the cold camp. You'll excuse me, ma'am. Sylvia felt that her lids were suddenly wavering. I might have been myself, she said, in a cold camp, too, if I hadn't thrown myself on the captain's mercy. 
At Birkenhead, you know. I happened to be there three weeks ago. It's strange that you mentioned it. There are things like signs. But you're not a Catholic. They could hardly be coincidences. She was trembling. She looked fumblingly, opening it, into the little mirror of her powder box of chased, very thin gold with a small blue stone, like a forget-me-not in the centre of concentric engravings. Drake, the possible father of Michael, had given it to her. The first thing he had ever given her. She had brought it down tonight out of defiance. She imagined that Tichens disliked it. She said breathlessly to herself, perhaps the damn thing is an ill omen. Drake had been the first man who had ever... A hot-breathed brute. In the little glass, her features were chalk-white. She looked like... She looked like... She had a dress of golden tissue. The breath was short between her white-set teeth. Her face was as white as her teeth. And yes, nearly her lips. What was her face like? In the chapel of the convent of Birkenhead, there was a tomb of all alabaster. She said to herself, he was near fainting... I'm near fainting. What's this beastly thing that's between us? If I let myself faint? But it would not make that beast's face any less wooden. She leaned across the table and patted the ex-sergeant major's black-haired hand. I'm sure, she said, you're a very good man. She did not try to keep the tears out of her eyes, remembering his words, up in the cold camp. I'm glad the captain, as you call him, did not leave you in the cold camp. You're devoted to him, aren't you? There are others he does leave up in the cold camp, for punishment, you know. The ex-sergeant major, the tears in his eyes too, said, Well, there is men you asked to give the CB to. CB means confined to barracks. Oh, there are, she exclaimed, there are, and women too. Surely there are women too. The sergeant major said, Wax, perhaps, I don't know. They say women's discipline is like ours. Founded on ours. She said, Do you know what they used to say of the captain? She said to herself, I pray to God the stiff, fatuous beast likes sitting here listening to this stuff. Blessed Virgin Mother of God, make him take me before midnight, before eleven, as soon as we get rid of this. No, he's a decent little man. Blessed Virgin. Do you know what they used to say of the captain? I heard the warmest banker in England say it of him. The sergeant-major, his eyes enormously open, said, Did you know the warmest banker in England? But there, we always knew the captain was well-connected. She went on. They said of him, he was always helping people. Holy Mother, Mother of God, he's my husband. It's not a sin. Before midnight, oh, give me a sign. Or before the termination of hostilities. If you give me a sign, I could wait. He helped virtuous Scotch students and broken-down gentry and women taken in adultery, all of them like, you know, who. That is his model. She said to herself, curse him. I hope he likes it. You'd think the only thing he thinks about is the beastly duck he's wolfing down. And then, aloud, they used to say he saved others himself he could not save. The ex-sergeant major looked at her gravely. Mammy said we couldn't say exactly that of the captain, for I fancy it was said of our redeemer. But we have said that if ever there was a poor bloke the captain could help, help him he would. Yet the unit was always getting Ellis strafe from headquarters. Suddenly Sylvia began to laugh. 
As she began to laugh, she had remembered the alabaster image in the nun's chapel at Birkenhead, the vision of which had just presented itself to her, had been the recumbent tomb of an honourable Mrs. Tremaine Warlock. She was said to have sinned in her youth, and her husband had never forgiven her. That was what the nun said. She said aloud, A sign! Then to herself, Blessed Mary, you've given it me in the neck, yet you could not name a father for your child, and I can name two. I'm going mad. Both I and he are going to go mad. She thought of dashing an enormous patch of red upon either cheek. Then she thought it would be rather melodramatic. She made, in the smoking room, whilst she was waiting for both Teachens and Cowley to come back from the telephone, another pact, this time with Father Consort in heaven. She was fairly sure that Father Consort, and quite possibly other of the heavenly pals, wanted Christopher not to be worried, so that he could get on with the war, or because he was a good sort of dullish man, such as the heavenly authorities are apt to like, something like that. She was by that time fairly calm again. You cannot keep up fits of emotion by the hour. At any rate, with her, the fits of emotion were periodical and unexpected, though her colder passion remained always the same. Thus, when Christopher had come into Lady Sasha's that afternoon, she had been perfectly calm. He had mooned through a number of officers, both French and English, in a great octagonal bluish salon where Lady Sasha gave her teas, and had come to her side with just a nod, the merest inflection of the head. Perone had melted away somewhere behind the disagreeable Duchess. The general, very splendid and white-headed and scarlet-tipped and gilt, had also borne down upon her at that. At the sight of Perone with her, he had been sniffing and snorting whilst he talked to the young nobleman, a dark fellow in blue with a new belt, who seemed just a shade too theatrical, he being chauffeur to a marshal of France, and first cousin and nearest relative, except for parents and grandparents, of the prospective bride. The general had told her that he was running the show pretty strong on purpose because he thought it might do something to cement the entente cordiale, but it did not seem to be doing it. The French, officers, soldiers and women, kept pretty well all on the other side of the room, the English on the other. The French were, as a rule, more gloomy than men and women are expected to be. A marquis of sorts, she understood that these were all Bonapartist nobility, having been introduced to her, had distinguished himself no more than by saying that, for his part, he thought the Duchess was right, and by saying that to Perone, who, knowing no French, had choked exactly as if his tongue had suddenly got too big for his mouth. She had not heard what the Duchess, a very disagreeable Duchess who sat on a sofa and appeared savagely careworn, had been saying, so that she had inclined herself in the courtly manner that at school she had been taught to reserve for the French legitimist nobility, but that she thought she might expend upon a rather state function even for the Bonapartists, and had replied that without the least doubt the Duchess had the right of the matter. The Marquis had given her from dark eyes one long glance, and she had returned it with a long, cold glance that certainly told him she was meet for his masters. It extinguished him. Teachens had staged his meeting with herself remarkably well. It was the sort of lymphatic thing he could do, so that, for the fifth of a minute, she wondered if he had any feelings or emotions at all. But she knew that he had, the general, at any rate, bearing down upon them with satisfaction, had remarked, "'Ah, I see you've seen each other before today. I thought perhaps you wouldn't have found time before, Teachens. 
Your draft must be a great nuisance. Teachin said without expression, Yes, we have seen each other before. I made time to call at Sylvia's hotel, sir. It was at Teachin's terrifying expressionlessness, at that completely being up to a situation, that the first wave of emotion had come over her. For, till that very moment, she had been merely sardonically making the constatation that there was not a single presentable man in the room. There was not even one that you could call a gentleman, for you cannot size up the French, ever. But suddenly she was despairing. How, she said to herself, could she ever move, put emotion into this lump? It was like trying to move an immense mattress filled with feathers. You pulled at one end, but the whole mass sagged down and remained immobile until you seemed to have no strength at all, until virtue went out from you. It was as if he had the evil eye or some special protector. He was so appallingly competent, so appallingly always in the centre of his own picture. The general said, rather joyfully, Then you can spare a minute, Teachins, to talk to the Duchess about coal. For goodness sake, man, save the situation. I'm worn out. Sylvia bit the inside of her lower lip. She never bit her lip itself. To keep herself from exclaiming aloud, it was just exactly what should not happen to Teachins at that juncture. She heard the general explaining to her, in his courtly manner, that the Duchess was holding up the whole ceremony because of the price of coal. The general loved her desperately, her, Sylvia, in quite a proper manner for an elderly general, but he would go to no small extremes in her interests, so would his sister. She looked hard at the room to get her senses into order again. She said, It's like a Hogarth picture. The undissolvable air of the 18th century that the French contrived to retain in all their effects kept the scene singularly together. On a sofa sat the Duchess, relatives leaning over her. She was a Duchess with one of those impossible names, Beauchamp Radigutz or something like it. The bluish room was octagonal and vaulted, up to a rosette in the centre of the ceiling. English officers and VADs of some evident presence opened out to the left, French military and very black-clothed women of all ages, but all apparently widows, opened out to the right, as if the Duchess shone down a sea at sunset. Beside her on the sofa you did not see Lady Sasha, leaning over her you did not see the prospective bride. This stoutish, unpresentable, coldly venomous woman, in black clothes so shabby that they might have been grey tweed, extinguished other personalities as the sun conceals planets. A fattish, brilliantined personality in mufti with a scarlet rosette stood sideways to the Duchess's right, his hands extended forward as if in an invitation to a dance. An extremely squat lady, also apparently a widow, extended on the left of the Duchess both her black-gloved hands as if she too were giving an invitation to the dance. The general, with Sylvia beside him, stood glorious in the centre of the clearing that led to the open doorway of a much smaller room. Through the doorway you could see a table with a white damask cloth, a silver gilt inkpot fretted like a porcupine with pens, a fat, flat leather case for the transportation of documents, and two notaries, one in black, fat and bald-headed, one in blue uniform with a shining monocle and a brown moustache that he continued to twirl. Looking round that scene, Sylvia's humour calmed her, and she heard the general say, 
She's supposed to walk on my arm to that table and sign the settlement. We're supposed to be the first to sign it together, but she won't, because of the price of coal. It appears that she has hothouses in miles, and she thinks the English have put up the price of coal, as if, damn it, you'd think we did it just to keep her hothouse stoves out. The Duchess had delivered, apparently, a vindictive, cold, calm and uninterruptible oration on the wickedness of her country's allies as people who should have allowed France to be devastated and the flower of her youth slain in order that they might put up the price of a comestible that was absolutely needed in her life. There was no arguing with her. There was no British soul there who both knew anything about economics and spoke French. And there she sat, apparently immovable. She did not refuse to sign the marriage contract, she just made no motion to go to it, and apparently the resulting marriage would be illegal if that document were brought to her. The general said, Now what the deuce will Christopher find to say to her? You'll find something, because he could talk the hind legs off anything, but what the deuce will it be? It almost broke Sylvia's heart to see how exactly Christopher did the right thing. He walked up that path to the sun and made in front of the Duchess a little awkward nick with his head and shoulders that was rather more like a curtsy than a bow. It appeared that he knew the Duchess quite well, as he knew everybody in the world quite well. He smiled at her and then became just suitably grave. Then he began to speak an admirable, very old-fashioned French with an atrocious English accent. Sylvia had no idea that he knew a word of the language, that she herself knew very well indeed. She said to herself that upon her word it was like hearing Chateaubriand talk, if Chateaubriand had been brought up in an English hunting country. Of course, Christopher would cultivate an English accent to show that he was an English country gentleman, and he would speak correctly to show that an English Tory can do anything in the world if he wants to. The British faces in the room looked blank. The French faces turned electrically upon him, Sylvia said, who would have thought? The Duchess jumped to her feet and took Christopher's arm. She sailed with him imperiously past the General and past Sylvia. She was saying that that was just what she would have expected of a milor anglais, avec un splain tel que vous l'avez. Christopher, in short, had told the Duchess that as his family owned almost the largest stretch of hothouse coal-burning land in England, and her family the largest stretch of hothouses in the sister country of France, what could they do better than make an alliance? He would instruct his brother's manager to see that the Duchess was supplied for the duration of hostilities, and as long after as she pleased, with all the coal needed for her glass at the pithead prices of the Middlesbrough-Cleveland district, as the prices were on the 3rd of August 1914. He repeated, The pithead price, Livrable au prix de Louis Maigret dans l'enceinte des puits de ma campagne. Much to the satisfaction of the Duchess, who knew all about prices. A triumph for Christopher was, at that moment, so exactly what Sylvia thought she did not want that she decided to tell the General that Christopher was a socialist. That might well take him down a peg or two in the General's esteem, for the General's arm-patting admiration for Tietjens, the man who did not argue but acted over the price of coal, was as much as she could bear. But, thinking it over in the smoking-room after dinner, by which time she was a good deal more aware of what she did want, she was not so certain that she had done what she wanted. 
indeed even in the octagonal room during the economical festivities that followed the signatures she had been far from certain that she had not done almost exactly what she did not want it had begun with the generals exclaiming to her you know your man's the most unaccountable fellow he wears the damn shabbiest uniform of any officer i ever have to talk to he's said to be unholily hard up i even heard he had a cheque sent back to the club then he goes and makes a princely gift like that just to get leaven out of ten minutes awkwardness i wish to goodness i could understand the fellow he's got a positive genius for getting all sorts of things out of the most beastly muddles why he's even been useful to me and then he's got a positive genius for getting into the most disgusting messes you're too young to have heard of dreyfus but i always say that christopher is a regular dreyfus i shouldn't be astonished if he didn't end by being drummed out of the army which heaven forfend it had been then that sylvia had said hasn't it ever occurred to you that christopher was a socialist for the first time in her life sylvia saw her husband's godfather look grotesque his jaw dropped down his white hair became disarrayed and he dropped his pretty cap with all the gold oak leaves and the scarlet when he rose from picking it up his thin old face was purple and distorted she wished she hadn't said it she wished she hadn't said it he exclaimed christopher a so he gasped as if he could not pronounce the word he said damn it all i've loved that boy he's my only godson his father was my best friend i've watched over him i'd have married his mother if she would have let me damn it all he's done in my will as residuary legatee after a few small things left to my sister and my collection of horns to the regiment i commanded sylvia though was sitting on the sofa the duchess had left patted him on the forearm and said but general godfather it explains everything he said with a mortification that was painful his white moustache drooped and trembled and what makes it all the worse he's never had the courage to tell me his opinions he stopped snorted and exclaimed by god i will have him drummed out of the service by god i will i can do that much his grief so shut him in on himself that she could say nothing to him you tell me he seduced the little wannop girl the last person in the world he should have seduced aren't there millions of other women he got you sold up didn't he along with keeping a girl in a tobacco shop by jove i almost lent him offered to lend him money on that occasion you can forgive a young man for going wrong with women we all do we've all set up girls in tobacco shops in our time but damn it all if the fellow's a socialist it puts a different complexion i could forgive him even for the little wannop girl if he wasn't but good god isn't it just the thing that a dirty-minded socialist would do to seduce the daughter of his father's oldest friend next to me or perhaps wannop was an older friend than me he had calmed himself a little and he was not such a fool he looked at her now with a certain keenness in his blue eyes that showed no sign of age he said see here sylvia you aren't on terms with christopher for all the good game you put up here this afternoon i shall have to go into this it's a serious charge to bring against one of his majesty's officers women do say things against their husbands when they are not on good terms with them he went on to say that he did not say she wasn't justified if christopher had seduced the little wannop girl it was enough to make her wish to harm him 
had always found her the soul of honour, straight as a die, straight as she rode to hounds. And if she wished to nag against her husband, even if in little things it wasn't quite the truth, she was, perhaps, within her rights as a woman. She had said, for instance, that Teachins had taken two pairs of her best sheets. Well, his own sister, her friend, raised Cain if he took anything out of the house they lived in. She had made an atrocious row because he had taken his own shaving glass out of his own bedroom at Mountsby. Women liked to have sets of things. Perhaps she, Sylvia, had sets of pairs of sheets. His sister had linen sheets with the date of the Battle of Waterloo on them. Naturally, you would not want a set spoiled. But this was another matter. He ended up very seriously. I have not got time to go into this now. I ought not to be another minute away from my office. These are very serious days. He broke off to utter against the Prime Minister and the Cabinet at home a series of violent imprecations. He went on, But this will have to be gone into. It's heartbreaking that my time should be taken up by matters like this in my own family. But these fellows aim at sapping the heart of the army. They say they distribute thousands of pamphlets recommending the rank and file to shoot their officers and go over to the Germans. Do you seriously mean that Christopher belongs to an organisation? What is it you are going on? What evidence have you? She said only that he's heir to one of the biggest fortunes in England for a commoner and he refuses to touch a penny. His brother, Mark, tells me Christopher could have, oh, a fabulous sum a year, but he's made over Groby to me. The general nodded his head as if he were ticking off ideas. Of course, refusing property is a sign of being one of these fellows. By Jove, I must go. But as for his not going to live at Groby, if he is setting up house with Miss Warnop, well, he could not flaunt her in the face of the country. And of course, those sheets. As you put it, it looked as if he had beggared himself with his dissipations. But of course, if he is refusing money from Mark, it's another matter. Mark would make up a couple of hundred dozen pairs of sheets without turning a hair. Of course, there are the extraordinary things Christopher says. I've often heard you complain of the immoral way he looks at serious affairs of life. You said he once talked of lethal chambering unfit children. He exclaimed, I must go. There's Thurston looking at me. But what then is it that Christopher has said? Hang it all. What is at the bottom of that fellow's mind? He desires, Sylvia said, and she had no idea when she said it, to model himself upon our Lord. The general leant back in the sofa. He said, almost indulgently, Who's that, our Lord? Sylvia said, Upon our Lord Jesus Christ. He sprang to his feet as if she had stabbed him with a hatpin. Our? he exclaimed. Good God, I always knew he had a screw loose, but, he said briskly, give all his goods to the poor, but he wasn't a, not a socialist. What was it? He said, render unto Caesar. It wouldn't be necessary to drum him out of the army. He said, good Lord, good Lord. Of course his poor dear mother was a little, but hang it, the one-up girl. Extreme discomfort overcame him. Teachens was halfway across from the inner room, coming towards them. He said, Major Thurston is looking for you, sir, very urgently. The general regarded him as if he had been the unicorn of the royal arms come alive. He exclaimed, Major Thurston? Yes, yes. And Tichens saying to him, I wanted to ask you, sir. He pushed Tichens away as if he dreaded an assault and went off with short, 
agitated steps. End of part two, chapter two, section one.